Welcome to Rise, Healing from Childhood Sexual Abuse Podcast. I am your host, Jessica Heil, registered psychologist and DBT certified clinician. I am also a childhood sexual abuse survivor. In this podcast, I will offer information about childhood sexual abuse in order to provide you with knowledge on this difficult topic, as well as provide you with strategies and tips that you can access now in order to begin moving from surviving to thriving. Welcome back, everybody. Today's episode is going to be the first one where I'm going to start to do a deep dive into the different types of therapy that are out there that help to heal the symptoms that occur because of childhood sexual abuse. The purpose of this episode and the next few episodes is really going to be about trying to give you a sense of what therapy does, kind of the pros and cons of the different types of therapy that are out there. I know that it can be really overwhelming trying to make a decision about what type of therapy to pursue because there's so many and they're so vast. And I think every therapy claims that they're the best therapy out there. And, you know, I always, I I truly do think that any therapy is better than no therapy, but I do also think that there's pros and cons of each type of therapy that is, um, is possible to try and that there's different reasons why somebody might go for a certain therapy over another. So I really hope this is going to help give you information so that you can start to make an informed decision about what type of therapy to pursue. Uh, Please keep in mind that as I talk about these different therapies, none of these are made for a person just to try to delve into themselves. They were all created to be facilitated by a clinician. So please do make sure that you're seeking out a clinician and not just trying to engage the therapy on your own. Before I proceed into the actual content of the episode, I just want to give a shout out to Feedspot. Feedspot is a website that serves as a content reader. It helps you keep up with multiple websites in one place so that you don't need to visit each of the websites to see what's new on them. They kind of just put a lot of information on one spot so that you can go there and access information easily. They have a list of the top 35 podcasts on childhood sexual abuse. And recently they reached out to me to let me know that I made their list. So that's very cool. I feel very honored that that is the case. And uh, just, yeah, it was was kind of neat because when I first started thinking about going into podcasting, I was listening to a whole bunch of different podcasts on childhood sexual abuse just to see what's out there and, you know, get my own information as well. And, um, you know, I'm a big podcast listener and so I I like to just, it's just a, a, a hobby, I'll say, of mine to listen to other people's podcasts. And I had found their list actually, and it had helped me figure out which podcasts to start to listen to on this topic. So now to make that list is, it's just a, it's a, it's a really neat thing. So uh, thank you Feedspot for featuring me on your website. And I'm going to put a link to that list in the show notes so that you can check out all the other amazing podcasts out there on childhood sexual abuse. Okay. So on to our content for today. Exposure therapy is where I'm going to start. Exposure therapy is not a therapy per se. There's uh, different therapies that incorporate the techniques of exposure therapy into them. And then there is one specific type of exposure therapy that I'm going to talk about at the end that's quite specific and helps to treat PTSD. But let's talk more broadly about what, what people mean when they say exposure therapy. 
Exposure therapy is based on a theory called classical conditioning. Classical conditioning is a type of automatic learning that we all have. And I'm going to geek out a little bit on you here, get a bit sciencey. It's where our brain will create what's considered a conditioned response through associations between unconditioned stimuli and then a neutral stimulus. So that I know that's that's really confusing to say. So I'm going to try to break it down and make it easier to understand. So an unconditioned stimulus is a stimulus that leads to an automatic response. So for example, loud noises, which is an unconditioned stimulus, create a startle response. It's an unconditioned or an automatic response. So we have something that happens in the environment that will create a response in virtually everybody, right? So loud noise, most people get a startle response. Another example would be if someone else's aggressive behavior is occurring right in front of you, and you're feeling threatened, then you're going to go into fight, flight, or freeze, right? So we have an unconditioned stimulus, somebody else's aggressive behavior, which is almost always going to create this natural response, this automatic response in everyone else. So fight, flight, or freeze, okay? So these are kind of things that happen in our world all the time where there's different stimuli out there that will create a response that is just about the same in everybody across the board. Um, so that's unconditioned stimuli and unconditional or unconditioned responses. What can happen is that sometimes we have what are considered neutral stimuli, which are like things that don't necessarily, or they don't actually, they just don't trigger certain responses in most people. So for example, most people, if they saw a picture of someone else being startled, that wouldn't make them startled. They can look at the picture and go, oh, like someone's, you know, looks like they're getting startled, but they, are, they themselves are not being startled from looking at that picture. So we have a neutral stimulus that does not create a response. Then what happens is that sometimes you can have a stimulus that was once neutral, so it didn't, it didn't ever create a response in a person, but then something happens so that it leads to starting to have a response. So here's where I'm going to start talking about the correlation here with uh, classical conditioning and sexual abuse. So let's say that previous, let's, let's just say that for um, a person who's been abused, let's, I'm, I'm just going to make a blanket statement here. Let's just say the person was abused by a man. I know that's not always the case, but let's say just for this example, a person was abused by a man. It's possible that previous to the abuse, you may have felt neutral about men, like men were just people, and then the abuse happened. And now since the abuse, perhaps you feel uneasy whenever you're around men that look like the perpetrator. Okay, so we had what was previously a neutral stimuli or stimulus, I guess, right? So people who looked like the perpetrator. And then after the abuse occurred, then the person or any person who looks like the perpetrator would now elicit this uneasy response in the survivor. Okay, so that's an example of how we start to get a neutral stimulus become a conditioned stimulus, okay, because it was paired with this aversive experience. So our brain learned how to have a response to the stimuli that reminds us of the abuse. Okay, so the brain learns things based on the associations of what's happening around it 
when we have kind of these negative events occur. And sometimes positive events too. So the classical conditioning can work both ways. If I was to always have, let's say, um, oh, I don't know, my coffee's beside me right now. So I'm looking at my coffee. Let's say that every time that I got together with my friends, I was tending to have a coffee. What would happen over time is my coffee, which is a neutral stimulus, would be paired with this pleasant experience. And over time, each time that I had a coffee, even if my friends weren't there, I might actually start to have a pleasant response because my brain would be reminded about the times with my friends. Okay, so classical conditioning works with both positive and negative events, goes both ways. But obviously today we're talking about what happens when, um, when abuse occurs. And so we're going to talk about how classical conditioning is involved with abuse. Um, some of you may have heard about this example, so I'm going to share it because I think it's the best known example of classical conditioning. There was this researcher named Pavlov, and he did some research involving dogs. This is uh, many decades ago, but classic research that was completed. And um, yeah, lots of people have heard about this one. So what Pavlov did is he paired a neutral stimulus. So the sound of a bell was what he did with the naturally occurring reflex of a dog salivating in response to food, okay? So we had an unconditioned stimulus, which was the food, and the unconditioned response, which was the dog salivating. Those were just happening naturally in the environment. And he started pairing this bell with the food at the same time. So he'd ring the bell at the same time that he was feeding the dogs, and the dogs would be salivating because the food was there. So what do you think happened over time? Over time, all he had to do was ring the bell and the dogs would start to salivate. They wouldn't even have to have the food around. They would just hear the bell and saliva would start to be produced because they started to associate the bell with the food. Okay, so this very same process is at play when it comes to traumatic experiences. So those neutral stimuli end up being paired with these unconditioned responses right? So again, like a, uh, a man who looks like the perpetrator gets paired with feeling uneasy, for example. Going forward from there, each person who looks like the perpetrator, even if they're not doing anything wrong, you may find yourself just feeling uneasy around it, around them. Um, other examples that are really common, if abuse happened at a certain time of day, then it's possible that you will start to feel discomfort or uneasy at that particular time of day, even though nothing negative is happening at that time of day anymore. Okay, so that's classical conditioning as well. Uh, being in a certain environment, so if the abuse always occurred in a certain room or around a certain object, then whatever those neutral stimuli were may start to be compared with, again, feeling uneasy, feeling discomfort, not feeling good around that environment or around those objects. Uh, I'll give a personal example because I think it's uh, just just helps to humanize this conversation a little bit. So for myself, one of the times where the abuse occurred was actually on a fishing trip that I went on with um, uh, with this perpetrator. And the abuse happened then. And I really struggle with anything related to fishing now. Uh, and of course, fishing itself is, you know, it's neutral. Actually, for many people, it's quite a pleasant experience. Uh, but I find that whenever I am around something that reminds me of fishing, 
the abuse does tend to come back to me. I feel that discomfort. I think about the abuse. It's really hard to um, to be in the presence of these fishing cues, which is tricky because I have other family members uh, who really like fishing. My husband likes fishing. My kids like fishing. And so it's something that I'm constantly having to battle against because I want to enjoy these experiences with my family. And yet I get triggered to remember about the abuse every time that, you know, fishing comes up. So it's an interesting thing, right? So fishing itself is not dangerous. It's not threatening. And yet my body tells me that it is. Why is that? Because of classical conditioning. I've been uh, conditioned to think that fishing itself is dangerous or that something bad is going to happen during fishing. So we tend to avoid the things that remind us of our abuse because it causes us distress, right? We don't want to remember. We don't want to have these constant triggers. And so it's, it seems easier just to avoid it, right? It's easier for me just to avoid fishing rather than have to be exposed to these cues that remind me of the trauma. But here's the thing is that if we avoid, it means we don't get opportunities to unlearn the associations we originally learned from the trauma, right? So if I never go fishing, I don't ever get to experience that fishing can be a positive thing, right? All I remember is the trauma instead, and my mind is going to just constantly continue to think that fishing itself is, uh, it, it causes me discomfort. If I'm willing to start to expose myself to what used to be these neutral stimuli, right? So if I go fishing, guess what? My brain starts to learn new associations. So if I go fishing with my husband and my kids and we have a really nice time, I now have a new neural connection that goes, oh, fishing equals pleasant. And that new neural connection is going to hopefully start to overpower the more negative neural connections that tell me that fishing is dangerous or unpleasant or causes discomfort. But it takes repetition. I can't just go fishing once and be like, well, that's that. I'm, you know, I'm my my aversion to fishing is now cured. It doesn't work that way. I need to go fishing over and over and over again so that my brain continues to form stronger connections to the association that fishing is pleasant and over time it's going to start to unlearn that fishing is unpleasant. So I want you to think about for yourselves what are things that you're avoiding because it reminds you of the trauma or the abuse that you've experienced and think about if there's things that you might be able to start to step into so that you can regain your power, right? Like I I really I personally hate the fact that I have an aversion to fishing because I don't want to give the perpetrator that power, right? Like I want to take that back for myself. I don't want to have any places where my life feels like it has to be smaller because the abuse occurred. Okay. But this is where therapy is really important. I really, really don't encourage anyone just to go out there and start to expose themselves to these things that they have aversive uh, connections with because it can be really overwhelming and can cause a lot of dysregulation. You want to make sure that you have the assistance of a professional if you're gonna to start to take those steps. So let's come back then to exposure therapy. So let's call this exposure therapy 101. The goal of the therapy 
is to incorporate exposure work. So start to approach these things that cause us pain and start to recognize the things that are being avoided. And then slowly and systematically, we're exposing ourselves to those triggers that cause that distress so that we eventually can create these new neural connections in our brain that tell us that the things that we used to find distressing are actually not distressing, right? They're just distressing because the abuse occurred uh, in these instances or they, you know, these things remind us of the abuse, but the abuse is no longer happening. And therefore there is actually nothing to be distressed about, right? We want to teach our brain that the memories themselves are not dangerous. There's nothing happening in this moment uh, related to the trauma that is currently dangerous, right? Now we only ever do exposure to things that are factually not dangerous. So I would never say to myself, for example, oh, it's okay to go on a fishing trip with this person being there, right? Like, oh, that would be the worst thing that would make me re-traumatize, not help my trauma, right? So those are the types of things we need to think about is what are the facts? Uh, so for example, I if somebody had been, let's say somebody had been assaulted, uh, maybe like it's like a, a random act of assault, um, could be sexual, could be physical, doesn't matter. But in our example, let's say somebody at some point had been attacked when walking down like a dark alley um, late at night. So if somebody came to my office saying that they wanted to work on treating their trauma based on that, I and let's say that they were avoiding a lot of places that were like dark and um, they weren't going out at night. That's pretty common for people who've been assaulted at nighttime. We would start to do exposure to them being outside at night, but only in places where if we check the facts, we're pretty certain that this is going to be safe. For example, I would say, let's go walk down a lit street in a neighborhood that we know is, is generally quite safe. Let's do it at like 8 p.m. when other people are out. I would never say to somebody, let's go do exposure to walking downtown in a dark alley at 3 a.m. down a street that's commonly known to have dangerous activity, right? There's a big, big difference between the two of those. So we're going to figure out what we can start to, uh, to, to approach so that we are no longer avoiding these things that cause us the distress. And with repeated exposure to these activities, we are going to find that our brain starts to learn that there is nothing dangerous about the situation. And over time, the distress will decrease. It's so fascinating to watch with people. People can go from being really, really afraid to do things to feeling just very empowered because they're like, oh, wow, like I can live my life again. I don't have to be held back because of this trauma that occurred to me. So really neat stuff. Okay, so that's exposure therapy 101. I'm gonna now talk about the specific type of exposure therapy that is frequently used to treat things that happened in our past, so like adverse experiences and abuse. It's called prolonged exposure, and it is what we call an empirically supported treatment for PTSD. An empirically supported treatment just means that there's been lots of research done around this particular treatment to show that it, it really does work for the population it was meant for, okay? So it treats people who have been diagnosed with PTSD. It's actually the gold standard for PTSD because there's so much research to back it. Now, it's very, very effective for single episode PTSD events. So if anyone's listening and if their abuse or say an assault happened and it happened just one time, 
this is the trauma treatment that I would recommend because it's, it's going to treat it very, very well. I said I would give you pros and cons of each trauma treatment. The one thing I don't love about prolonged exposure is, in my experience, it's not as effective at treating pervasive abuse. So if you had like abuse happening many, many, many times, sometimes there's other treatments that do treat it better, such as EMDR, which I'll talk about in a later episode. However, that being said, prolonged exposure has been adapted by DBT, which is that therapy that I'm certified in, dialectical behavior therapy. It's been adapted to treat more pervasive traumatic events. So there's actually a protocol now called DBT-PE, and it is used to treat pervasive trauma. So if you're already in a DBT program, it is possible that your clinician is going to be trained in doing this and they can use prolonged exposure no matter how many traumatic events have happened to you. Um, but it's also possible that if you're, if you're not already doing DBT, then I would probably say if the abuse was pervasive, it happened many, many, many times, then you're more likely going to benefit from going to something that is like EMDR, which is geared to treating more pervasive traumas than prolonged exposure. Um, okay, so let's talk about prolonged exposure so that you have a sense of what it is. Essentially, it involves creating what is called an in vivo exposure hierarchy. In vivo means real life. We create an exposure hierarchy to the things you're avoiding in your life. And we do it on a rating scale of zero to 100, where zero is like it causes no distress and 100 is like the worst distress you can possibly imagine. And we will fill it in with different things that you're avoiding to make sure that we have a nice uh, variety of different things on each of those ratings of the scale. So from zero to 100. So we figure out what's being avoided and then we strategically begin to expose to those stimuli for long enough that the distress starts to come down. And we always think when it comes to avoidance, what are we avoiding that is related to people, places, and things? And then we start to engage in approaching those people, places, and things, as long as factually we know that there isn't any justified danger, right? We need to make sure that it's not actually dangerous, that we're going to expose to this thing and nothing bad happens. And when that happens over and over and over that we expose, nothing bad happens, it starts to teach the brain that the things we were avoiding are not dangerous. It was the cues that were causing discomfort because they remind us of our trauma, but they're not dangerous themselves, right? The trauma is no longer happening. The other part of prolonged exposure is something called imaginal exposure. And this is where we are going to repeatedly share the story of what happened during the traumatic event or the abuse, right? Sometimes for some people, it wasn't necessarily traumatic at the time. We talked about that a couple episodes before. So I want to be cautious of, about always calling it trauma because sometimes it doesn't feel like it was and that's okay. Um, it still is, obviously, it's impacted your brain um, significantly enough regardless of whether or not it felt traumatic at the time. But we start to repeatedly share the story of what happened in the abuse in order to teach the brain that the memory of the abuse is not dangerous. Okay, we want to teach it that the memory is not dangerous and that you are capable of tolerating the thoughts and the images of the abuse because the memories, the thoughts, the images themselves are not dangerous, right? Or they're not going to cause you pain. They're not going to cause you harm. 
let me do a caveat. They will cause you pain at the beginning because it is distressing to think about it. But the more that you talk about the story of what happened, that distress is going to come down. The goal is to get to a point where you're never, obviously, you're never going to like that this happened. You will wish that it didn't. It may cause you some emotion to think about it, but we don't want it to continue to be distressing. We want to get the distress down. And we do that by sharing the story over and over and over and over until we habituate to the emotion. The emotion starts to come down. The distress is no longer there. And we get to the point where we can talk about what happened without emotions feeling really heightened. And there's a power in that. Like just imagine being able to think about and talk about what happened to you without feeling super dysregulated. At the end of each prolonged exposure session, there's an opportunity to process any insights that came from the session. And this can include your own insights based on what you experienced during the session. And it can also include the insights of the therapist that whatever they picked up on. For example, the therapist might highlight certain like self-judgments that they um, observed in you that seemed really apparent and they might gently encourage you to reframe the thoughts in a way that seems more effective or more factual. Last episode, I had talked a bit about how core beliefs are part of what continues to cause us distress as abuse survivors. So we're really looking at let's kind of pick away at those core beliefs and shift them so that they're more adaptive for us going forward. Phew, that's a lot of information. I think that's where we're going to stop for today. Next episode, I'm going to give a rundown of EMDR, which is probably the the most well-known treatment for helping people with symptoms related to adverse experiences. So that'll be next time. Uh, Thank you for listening, everybody. And I hope you all have just a, a great week until the next time that we're speaking. Take care for now. Thanks so much for listening. If you found today's episode helpful, please go ahead and leave me a review. And you can also follow the show so that you don't miss out on any future episodes. For more information about me, you can check out my website, www.innersolutions.ca.